0: The Good Samaritan, <laughs> I told uh, someone this morning that, I, that, I, that, that when I was, saw that I was going to preach on the Good Samaritan, I was like terrified, you know, you ever done that? You're like, oh, I got to preach on something everybody knows, that's what it is, that's kind of like, everybody knows about the Good Samaritan, and uh, except for, I discovered that some of the kids here didn't, and that was good, I was... Uh, not good, but it's good that I got to share something with them. It's terrible. What's wrong with you, parents? Uh, do what? <laughs> I don't know. You know, sometimes I get off to a funny start in the morning. Um, Here we are. I love the story of the Good Samaritan. It's one of it's one of. I love parables. I don't know about you. I just love parables. Um, I love that. It's a love-hate thing because sometimes I'm like, what does that mean? You know, especially the sort ones. You know, at least this one, you get a, you get a good, good hunk of it and you can kind of get the idea. Uh, the short ones, sometimes I'm like, oh, God, really got to look at that again. What interests me about Jesus is he is, he, I've, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Jesus is a master teacher. He's somebody who really gets people, doesn't he? He understands. He ought to. He created us. But he, he understands how we act, how we function, how we think. And I think that's a beautiful thing about him. But he's a good teacher. He's, one of the, he's the best teacher that ever walked the face of the earth. And I love that. Good teachers love good questions. Good teachers love good questions. Really, good teachers can work with any question. A, a good teacher can work with any question. You know, you've heard the teacher that says, there's, not, there's no such thing as a bad question. How many of you agree with that? No such thing as a bad question. Hmm. Yeah, see, you, you, I'm setting you up, aren't I? Yeah, you can just tell. Now, the, the teachers in here say, well, no, that's really not true. You know, if, you, if you're a teacher, especially with children, you know there are bad questions, all right? Because uh, they, they, every child has the tendency to come up with ones that you're like, that's one we don't want to answer. Okay, not, not, We want to deal with that. But Jesus was the master teacher when he walked the earth he regularly taught through questions posed by people in the crowds. you know if somebody asked something teacher teacher, and he would work his teaching through that he uh, he, he if, if the crowds didn't provide the question then he would what do you think of this he would say and get and bring that question into light um today's passage in my opinion, is one of the most well-known and often misunderstood parables in the Bible. Now, I say it's it's well-known because um, people who know nothing about Christianity and God's Word know about the Good Samaritan, right? Do you believe me? It's in the news. I actually Googled it last night because I was looking for something in particular in one in one um, text, and I kind of I did a search, not a Google. I did a search. Uh, in, and I was searching within a what I thought was a document, and it ended up taking me everywhere when I searched for it. It took me to very interesting stories about so-called good Samaritans, quite interesting. Um, and, uh, but but the, reason I, the reason I was searching for it was because I was going back through an article that I had read earlier This week, and I was trying to find uh, the the particular section in there regarding uh, uh, that used the word "good Samaritan." Now, you've probably heard of the uh, Stanford student rape case. Have you heard of that? I'm kind of going to nod your head if you have. Uh, It's a little over a year old now, and uh, and still running fresh in both in the news and in the uh, and in um, commentaries in in the on, on the internet. Um, it's an interesting story. It's all about the, you've, you've probably heard about the victim's letter to her attacker, right? And I, I read the letter. I cried reading the letter. I cried and I was appalled, both at the same time. Um, the, uh, it, it's a very horrible, horrible situation And not so shining moment for our judiciary, all right? Just have to say that. Um, The the rapist was convicted, but then sentenced to six months for his crime. And um, normal sentencing would go closer to five to 10 years. And so I I was really, everybody was shocked about that. It's a horrible situation, but I'm not going to go into the details of it. What's interesting is is that usually in a case like this, there's a lot of attention paid to, well, the details of how the rescue came about, how, in her case, she was rescued from her attacker. She may have wound up dead from the sound of things, had had things continued before these two men showed up. and you know the, the the two men you know look, the, they were Swedish uh, students uh, grad students at at Stanford, and the, these Sweden, Swedish students rode up on their bicycles, took notes, saw this the, this something going on. At first they thought it was a um, what they called legitimate hookup, which I would say there is no such thing as a legitimate hookup. But um, but it, nonetheless, they, they were that's what they were thinking, and so they were going to just ride on. And then they and this is going on behind some dumpsters. And um, you know, I'm thinking, what kind of legitimate anything happens behind dumpsters other than throwing some trash out, which probably should have gone in. But um, the, the they, so they're in this situation, they're looking, they start to ride by. One of them notices that. You know, it doesn't look normal, even for a quote legitimate hookup. What it looks like is is that this that the girl's not moving, and um, that seemed odd to him. He said, "We got to stop and check this out." Checked it out, discovered indeed the girl was not moving. Uh, they, he and uh, and the the um, I, I hesitate to call him a young man, but he was young and he was male. And he gets up, and and they talk with him a little bit, and then he books, gets nervous, and runs. And the two check, make sure the girl's breathing, and then one of them takes off. I guess both of them take off. It depends on the story you read. I couldn't quite get it. take off after the guy that's running, tackle him, hold him down. Others come and help them while they hold him down for the police to come. That's a horrible story, isn't it? These two men were called in the story Good Samaritans. Good Samaritans. Now, they could have ridden on and so the story actually sort of fits. But... But I, I'm not going to tell you about that story. I, the reason I bring that up is because I understand that these are awkward moments, these are difficult moments, and they're sometimes hard to call. And that's the kind of situation Jesus created, in, in, not literally, but created in a picture story that he wanted to bring about this Samaritan. Now, organizations use this word Samaritan all the time, right? We hear of Samaritans all the time. Uh, Samaritan is a positive indicator. Samaritan's Purse, right? You've heard of Samaritan's Purse. Uh, Samaritan Counseling Center. Samaritan Center. Samaritan ministry, Samaritan Hospital. Good Samaritan Law, etc. Is that a good nomer for, a good name for these organizations? Let's look at the conversation that Jesus has and kind of see if if the common understanding is valid and how Jesus intended that we respond, all right? Because the important thing is not what is a Samaritan. The important thing is how did Jesus intend for those who hear this parable respond to what he's saying? So let's take a look for a moment in in, uh, chapter 10 of of the book of Luke, beginning with verse um, 25, all right? Beginning with verse 25. And behold, now this is setting up the stage, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? Now this is Jesus talking, now back to him. What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he, that is Jesus, said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Father, we come before you. We know that your word is truth. You know you have something to say to us this morning. So we pray that you would speak to us, not, not just uh, what a man has to say like myself, but what you have to say to our hearts. Lord, help us to listen to what your Spirit is speaking. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll get to the story of the Good Samaritan in just a moment. Don't worry. It'll be there. But this is the setting. The lawyer very boldly stood up to be noticed and raised an important question. He said, teacher, teacher, what must I do? To inherit eternal life, right? Good question. Good question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? There's not a more important question to ask a religious leader. There's not a more important question to ask someone who uh, pretends or purports to speak the truth. This is the question we need to ask. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I, I um, actually had hoped to kind of go through this when I first was going to write this message, but you don't have time for me to say everything I want to say. And so I, I kind of, but, but I wanted to look at all the times in Scripture that somebody said, What's my, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to be saved? Those kinds of questions and kind of line them out. The answers, it's interesting, it's intriguing, and it's actually eye-opening to see how those que- that question is responded to throughout the Scripture. What must I do? To be saved, and uh, it's it's, uh, answered in various ways through uh, from Jesus as well as the Book of Acts. And although some have described the lawyer's test as evil or hostile, I believe that in this context, the lawyer is genuinely asking of the question to gain understanding, looking for an answer that will make sense and help him toward the goal of eternal life. You gotta understand. Many of the religious leaders of that day were struggling with this question. You know, it's kind of funny. We act like they knew what they were doing, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the whatever-you-sees, okay? They, they were... They, we, don't, we think they know what they were doing, but they were like... They were confused themselves, and they were, and you know, it happens even today among religious leaders. They think they act like they know what they do, they speak with confidence. But how many cults and how many other religions do you have out there? And the guy speaking with confidence, he knows nothing about achieving eternal life. And if you ask any Muslim, they'll be able to tell you flat out, they don't know. They got to live the life somehow, and hopefully Allah will forgive them, right? I mean that's That's kind of like major religion. And they don't know the answer to that. So it's a good question, and this is the question that that is common. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, came to Jesus at night, secretly seeking the answer to this basic question. The Sadducees didn't even believe it was possible to have eternal life. I mean, their religious leaders are messed up. The master teacher, though, flips the question back to the lawyer what is written in the law what is written you know how do you read it you know this is your business you're in you know that's kind of like jesus said to nicodemus remember he said to nicodemus he said what you're a teacher of the law and you don't know this and jesus now is addressing a, a lawyer and he says you know the law what's it read how does it read to you And here's the deal, I I think, um, he he says, give it your best shot. You you have had time to study this yourself. Um, Now, if the lawyer was putting Jesus to the test uh, uh, maliciously, Christ just deflected the first blow. However, I I, I just believe it was legitimate. I think it was a legitimate question, uh, partly because I see Jesus giving him lots of time with this. Uh, the lawyer had to provide his understanding of the scripture. With others watching, he didn't have a choice, did he? (laughs) He kind of like, all these people are watching, they know I'm a teacher of the law, I had better give an answer. And this is the answer, right? And for Jesus, this answer provided insight into the lawyer's perspective. And our answer, our answers to that question provide insight into our own perspective. So if somebody were to ask you, what must I do to have eternal life? You might really examine your own thoughts. Where do I stand? What would my answer be? I would look at that. But the lawyer did well. He quotes from Deuteronomy, the, uh, uh, verse you know, chapter 6, verse 5, I think it's up there, and from Leviticus. Any teacher of the law would have quoted the Deuteronomy passage. You must... Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Any teacher of the law would have said that. By quoting from Leviticus, the lawyer revealed his awareness of the further importance of loving one's neighbor. He got this. This was not all of the teachers of the law. Not all the Pharisees would catch on to that, but he caught on. I think likely he had been pondering this very issue as he contemplated the way to obtain eternal life. Let's see, if I do this, I'm about as religious as they come, right? So how do I, but I'm not sure, I'm not sure. So we listen to Jesus' words as, as when we listen to Jesus' words, we have to remind ourselves that he never lied. Why do I say that? We have to remind ourselves that Jesus never lied. So his answer to the lawyer is important because what he's saying is not false. And that bugs me. And it should bug you. All right? Just want you to know that. He said, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. sounds like Jesus gives a works-based answer, doesn't it? Do this. Love God. Love your neighbor. You got it. Eternal life. Nice formula. But like the lawyer, we need more information. So go ahead, ask another question. Verse 29, what does he say? But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and um, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Got to nail this down just a little bit more carefully. I got God. I got the God. Thing. It's, okay, who is my neighbor? Mm-hmm. I think that the lawyer revealed his pride and his inadequacy. His pride, like thinking, I think I got this, I think I got this, I got the words, love Lord, love neighbor, but who is my neighbor? Of all people, he should be living up to the requirements for eternal life. If not him, who? Still he had his doubts. How how could he not? Guilt plagues us all. Any honest person is aware of their sin. Have you met anybody who's sinless? I, no, me neither. Me neither. Even Mike, you know. Even Mike. People are aware of their sin. Many people seeking salvation face some form of the lawyer's dilemma. They, they want to think they're good enough. Wow. Raising their hopes. I'm sorry. Raising a question in their hopes. Uh, that, that somehow the answer will, uh, will uh, allow them to slide by. In spite of things that are not quite right in their life. Right? I mean, I, wouldn't that be nice? Oh, well, that's a slide by who is my neighbor? Yeah, I'll slide by, you know. A white lie. Oh, well, I'll just slide by, right? What is a lie? I mean, I have hear that one more often than I hear who is my neighbor anymore. Like, what is a lie anyway? How about a white lie? You know, I could do a white lie, but not a, what, a black lie? I don't know. What's the difference? You know. We may not ask who is our neighbor, but any one of us could find a way to water down, tone down the command to love God or to love our neighbor. I mean, we can do it with God as well. And probably he could have, he just didn't. Either way, we will downplay our lack of love often by comparing ourselves to someone else. I'm better than Mike. I'm sorry, Mike, I'm just picking on you this morning. You know? (laughs) You know? I mean how can that be well because Mike has flaws that I know of that I don't have and I'm going to pick on his flaws not mine right because that's my way of dealing with my sin problems so that I can say to God I'm good enough it happens at funerals by the way all the time well he was better than so and so but this background information should help us understand the parable of the good Samaritan let's take a look okay now we're going, to look, we're going to get to the story finally. Yes. Verse 30, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. That is two days wages and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, that is the man, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The questions find expression through our familiar story that brings tension to our own comfortable ideas of salvation. This one is not comfortable for us. This is a simple story, as are most parables. We need to resist the temptation to assign too much significance to each character and each of the details, all right? The point is he's, try- he's trying to get the big point across to us. The road to Jericho was now a notorious 14-mile winding stretch surrounded by cliffs, caves, and rocky terrain. Unless absolutely necessary, you wouldn't travel it alone. Apparently, it was necessary for this this person. Jews would take this route, by the way, to avoid going... Listen carefully. Jews would take this route to avoid going through Samaria. So this was an avoidance of Samaritans' route. This was avoid the bad people route, the people we consider evil. They didn't want to get defiled by contact with the hated Samaritans. Now, the victim, generally understood to be a Jew, had to travel alone, apparently, and as a result, he suffered at the hands of robbers. Now, I don't know if he was a Jew or not. It never says. The text does not say. But his hearers would probably assume Jew, who else would be on that road. They took everything, including his clothes, and left him for dead. This we understand. However, at this point, it gets trickier for the lawyer and for us. He and we, both of us, all of us, are expecting an explanation to the answer, basically, to the question, who is my neighbor? Right? That's not the question he's giving an answer to. At least it doesn't seem to be. In fact, I think many people still misunderstand the answer by various explanations of who the neighbor is. I want you to listen carefully. Admit it, by the way. Sometimes you've thought of the neighbor as the victim, right? I mean, sometimes it's just kind of like you read that story, you read it through quickly. Ah, oh, the victim, neighbor. Because why? Who is my neighbor? What's well, the person I need to help? That's not what he says. Right? That's not, the, that's not the answer that Jesus is giving. Nor is it the answer that, that uh, the, the lawyer gives at the end. There is some truth to this, by the way, that would be be true, it would be of your neighbor. But no, Jesus does not focus on the identity of the victim. The victim kind of fades into the background of the story. Instead, Jesus brings a focus on three distinct characters. The priest, the lawyer, I mean, sorry, the the, uh, Levite, and the Samaritan. Now, if we were to have this story today, Jesus might have used it a little differently. He might have said the pastor, the deacon, and the politician. Right? Or maybe, maybe uh, uh, Mike, Jer- uh, Tim, and Jeremy. I don't know, you know. Oh, he walked out right when I was saying that. Um, but we look at it, we say, you know, the politician, by the way, the politician, of course, the other side right, the, other the other party the other party whatever that is it's the other party and uh uh but but that's true it's, it, it's true to that the the point is that that we would expect our pastor of course to show compassion to an injured man but uh, we know he's busy he's a busy man a lot to do got to do a lot of good got to, got to accomplish things and, and he is getting us in touch with god so he better show up and preach right so if something happens on the way to church forget it you know mike tim and jeremy are going to show up right because we're going to preach forget the person laying on the side of the road that's somebody else we might kind line one one hey by the way i just passed a guy who's bloody on the road i'm, I'm but i'm out of here you know Surely the deacon, by the way, would, uh, uh, would have time, deacons all have time, and, 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 and the character to help the man in distress. You see, the lawyer would think highly of the priest and of the Levite. They would be considered religiously connected and the most likely to succeed in the spiritual realm. So everybody hearing this story is listening and saying, no, the priest... The Levite, of course, they're going to do the right thing. They're the spiritual giants of our day. They've got to do it. Anyone, if anyone could get the neighbor thing right, it would be one of these godly men. But they didn't. They saw the man in the ditch. They saw his suffering. They walked on the other side of the road as far as they possibly could. The word here is unique. It expresses an extreme effort to dart to the opposite side of the road and try to avoid seeing anything that might require them to take responsibility for what's happening on the other side. By the way, just just on the side, it just seems like it takes a lot of effort sometimes to sin. You say, no, it doesn't. Oh, yeah, yeah. You go out of your way to sin sometimes, right? Right? i don't know why we do that but we it's like god gives us every manner of escape scripture tells us that he does that he gives us every manner of escape but we go out of our way to avoid those manners of escape and do what we want to do this is what these guys are doing in the in the parable of course since this is a parable by the way jesus could have given the motives wouldn't that be nice because, I don't know, Mike, I've heard sermon after sermon that, that gave the motives of the priest and of the, of the Levite and then later of the Samaritan. Jesus didn't. There's one of two reasons I think that would be true. One, I, I, I think he just didn't think it mattered. And the other is I think that any one of us could easily plug in our own motives in how we avoid any need that would be inconvenient to us. So I go that one. It's easy. I can pick that one up. And you know, by the way, you would have given plenty of reasons at any given time to avoid getting involved. You know you would have. I'm not, I'm not picking on you. I know I would have. Okay. Jesus wanted to focus on the Samaritan. We know that Samaritans were considered evil and untouchable by the Jews. They were half-breeds. They were the result of the fall and exile of the northern kingdom. They intermarried with idolatrous nations, and they followed a syncretistic view of Judaism. You understand syncretism? Okay, just, just so you understand syncretism, it's basically the combining of ideas and making something new out of it. So they'll combine ideas of Judaism with idolatry, and they would create some new religion. But we're our world is loaded with those things. We generally find them to be cults, but there are other other syncretistic religions that are very large. And so you just, that's that's what it means. All right, just so you know. Um, Remember, this is the road to Jericho. Samaritans did not walk that road. This, wasn't, this was the place the Jews went to get away from them. So it's very unusual that, uh, that there's a, a Samaritan walking along this road. And he definitely has to walk alone because nobody's going to walk with him. The Jews are not going to touch him. And so they don't like him being there. Um, a good Jew would avoid this Samaritan like a plague. I'm going to just skip my little joke. and um, but, but verse 33 throws a surprise at the lawyer. Listen to what he says. In verse 33, he says, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he, he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He had compassion. This Samaritan not only saw the injured traveler, he also had compassion compassion here is a man likely to be shunned even by the man in the ditch where the circumstances reversed and he acts with compassion compassion is evidence of an eternal point of view now i want you to pay attention to that it's an evidence evidence of an eternal point of view that is, compassion shows the heart of God toward his creation, even a wayward creation. In contrast to the priest and the Levite, the Samaritan goes to the man. I talked to the children about this. He binds the wounds. He treats them with oil and wine. The cost begins to add up. He places them on his own animal. He takes them to the inn. He pays for his care for two days' wages. That's at least 100 bucks or 200 bucks, and promises to pay any additional expense when he returns. Jesus does not let the lawyer off the hook, does he? Instead, he introduces a new question. Notice the question is not one of, who is my neighbor? Jesus wasn't interested in the common theological debates of the day. I'm sure they all asked that question to each other. Hey, who is a neighbor? Who do you think a neighbor is? Well, who do I think a neighbor is? That's what the theologians did that day. You know, it was like, you know, do you believe in predestination or not? I mean, that was the way you talked, All right, well, you know, no, this isn't important. Jesus didn't mess with all these little questions. He went to the big one. So, who is the neighbor in this story? Who was the neighbor in this story? Well, really, he's saying, who acted like a neighbor? Right? Right? Verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? The answer is obvious. However, it seems like the lawyer had a little difficulty actually saying the word. He doesn't say the Samaritan. But instead, he says, the one who showed him mercy, right? The one who showed him mercy, he acted like a Mary. That, Jesus said, good enough, good enough, got it, got the answer we need. He didn't worry about saying Samaritan. It was tough enough. I mean, the lawyer didn't want to use the term, about you know, especially in a good sense. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise, Simple as that. For those who have eternity in their grasp, their heart and actions reflect his heart and actions. Jesus is acting currently in the story. As he walks the earth, he is acting with compassion and mercy toward all of us who without him have no hope. And, And now he says... Go and do the same thing, just like I'm doing, just like God Himself is doing. The question we have to ask ourselves regarding our walk with God is do I have compassion toward those with whom I would normally not associate? So that's really that's a question. And it's not a question of am I doing this to be saved. It's not a question, am I doing this so I can have eternal life? It's a question of, am I matching what I say I am as being a follower of Christ? Do my actions match those of Christ in this situation? Jesus did not ignore the question regarding eternal life. Instead, he brought us to the point of seeing our own hearts in light of the eternal. When I follow him, I will have his compassion and my actions will follow suit as a by the way, as a good Baptist, I have to always say as a good Baptist because I, I don't know that I am, but I focus a lot of attention on the need to repent and turn to Christ, right? I mean, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, That's going to be my story. You, can, you need to repent of your sins, turn your life over, and give your life to Him as Lord. Take him, let Him take control, charge of your life. He will give you eternal life. He promises that, right? So we know that. This passage reveals that need. And a lot of people will interpret this passage to be I think I just lost something. Okay. I'm Somebody said, you've gone too long, Tim. <laughs> too bad. Uh, I can shout louder. Um, and this passage does reveal the need. Not really the main point of the passage. The main point is evaluate. Do you have God's heart or do you not have God's heart? You don't have God's heart, then you need him. If you have God's heart, you've already received it. There's an evidence shown. It's evidence. Uh, I, I don't do good things. I don't help needy people in order to obtain eternal life. I help needy people. I have compassion because I don't have, by the way, in my flesh, I don't have a whole lot of compassion fact, I can be pretty harsh. My daughter says, no way, Dad, you're the nicest guy I ever met. Just, well, if I am, which I'm not, but if I am, it's only because Jesus has done a work in my heart. And he has changed me and made me something new. The Holy Spirit has given me that. You see, I, I know I have eternal life, not by the fact that I've done something good, but because I have a heart toward doing that, which is right. I have a heart, a compassion for those who are in need around me. And when I don't have compassion, I have to honestly look and say, God, what am I doing? Have I stepped out? But usually it's just basically the Holy Spirit saying, Bissell, bam! It's called discipline, spiritual discipline, I think. But he does do that. Today, you may see your need more clearly. And I hope that you can look at that. And especially if you don't know Christ, I hope you can look at that and say, Oh, yes, I need that. I need that. Um, I want to invite you into the, if you're at that stage, I want to invite you into the only relationship that will change your heart. The only relationship that really will change your heart. You know, the scripture says that I will take your hearts of stone and I will give you hearts of flesh. Who can do that? Only God can do that. Only God can do that. And that heart of flesh causes me, when I read a story like the woman who was raped at Stanford University, to weep. Because I have compassion. Most people weep at that, whether or not they know Jesus. You read that, you're going to cry. But, Do you cry for the guy who's homeless walking on the street? Do you cry for your neighbor who is living just a life of sin and and misery because he's without Christ? Do you have compassion toward those who are around you? Well, if I had that compassion, then I know I'm in the right place with God. Knowledge is not enough. The priest and the Levite, for that matter, the lawyer, had knowledge. They knew, love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor. They got the knowledge thing down. They needed something more. The Samaritan had the heart. He had the heart. That kind of heart is the result of a new birth, of knowing Christ and all he has done for you as he demonstrated his compassion for you when he died on the cross. Are you going to do that? Are you going to live that life? Later on, we'll take the Lord's Supper. It's a symbol of what what you've done already. It's a symbol. That's not the receiving of Christ. That is the receiving of, of a symbol that reminds you of something you already received. If you're here today and you've not done that, if you've not received him personally, I want to invite you to do that. I want to invite you to do that. And you can do that through prayer, through seeking him, and yes, through repentance and turning to him. I'm, but we're not going to do that right here and now unless you come to, to one of us uh, somewhere during the service or following, and we'll see help you understand exactly what that means. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you because of your son, Jesus. We come to you because you have really given most of us life in you. And that life gives us compassion we didn't have before. That life gives us a love we didn't have before. Father, we want to love you with our whole heart, soul, mind, strength. We want to love our neighbors as ourselves. Oh, God, we know we love ourselves. Help us to love those around us. Lord, we can't do that on our own. Only through your power can we do that. So we pray that you'd give us that. In Jesus' name, amen.